It's 4 o'clock in, I was going to say in Miami, it's 4 o'clock in Los Angeles. You know what time that is, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woohoo! <laughs> and, okay. This show today has been nothing but a disaster so far. Our most disastrous episode in nine years. I kid you not. Um, why? Because our guest, Henry Winkle, uh, we called him about a half an hour before the show to do the setup. We were going to do a split screen show uh, this week. And in the process of calling him to make sure it was all set up, um, he said, I just got to call somebody very close to me who's in a car accident, got to go to the hospital. So we wish that person well. And Henry, we're sorry to hear that. So we said, yeah, what the heck? We'll wing it today, and I'm going to do Mikey's Christmas Gift Guide for Musicians on today's show. And then Wirecast just kept freaking out on us. It just kept, like, I'd press go, and it would just shut down. So here we are. Um, so there's this weird image in the middle of my screen right now, but I can live with that. It's got one of those little circles with a Oh, cross. if you click on the one with the, the top right, the red button, it should go away. There we go. Uh, let's go back to, okay. Um, anyway, so we're back live. I'm not in Miami, we're in Los Angeles. I'm a little disoriented. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you, Dean. Uh, Dean Turner says, welcome, Michael. And House says, hello. Dale Berman, Russell Nolan, Marion Laird, Patrick Adams, Steven Spinner, Bob Gunnerfelt. Anyway, um, so things that I want to talk about before I get into the Christmas gift buying mode. Um, somebody sent me this. I have no idea who it came from. It came as a gift from Amazon. Thank you, whoever sent it. Yep. There you go. Um, anyway, I have no idea. I looked at every piece of paper in that box. I have no idea who sent it. Um, so there you go. Uh, but thank you for that. Um, also, Britt Fox, who I met at the road rally, sent me that. It's a scarf. <laughs> thank you, Britt. Um, check this out. A cool photograph of Britt and her baby at the rally. So Britt said she really enjoyed the panel at the rally where I had uh, the successful taxi members talking about um, how they allocate their time and find the time to do what they do. And she said, you know, I'm a single mom. I would love to talk about that. So now that we've got the technology worked out where we can do split screen remotes, I may actually ask young Miss Fox to join me on the show to talk about that, a lady's perspective. There we go, I'm having a hard time getting myself centered today. Um, I think that would make for an interesting show. Uh, what else do I want to talk about? Uh, oh. Fett and Nancy uh, sent us an entire like pizza-sized box full of baklava. And that got here, I believe, on Friday. And I put on three pounds over the weekend. 
I was actually coming back from somewhere in the city and had to drive by the office to get home. And I pulled off the 101 freeway, opened the door, went straight to the kitchen, had three or four pieces of baklava, a little swig of water, and then left and went home. <laughs> and my wife's like, why aren't you hungry for dinner? I don't know. Um, so thank you, Fett and Nancy. Uh, let's see, what else did we get? Um, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to say thank you to the firefighters. Um, you know, it's really hard when you watch any sort of natural disaster on TV. Um, I remember many, many, many years ago, Deb and I were watching TV and, and we saw some people on the rooftop. Uh, their town had been flooded and they were like waving at helicopters trying to get rescued. And I went, ah, oh, those poor bastards. You, you know, you feel for them and then it's like, where's David Letterman? You change the channel. Um, having been through a significant earthquake, uh, the Northridge quake, uh, that changed our perspective a lot. And this fire that happened about a week ago, was it? Yeah. Um, uh, it just ended about a week ago. Well, it's still burning in some places. But anyway, um, I cannot begin to tell you how close it got to the office, number one, and how incredibly close it got to our home. Um, got within about two-thirds of a mile to the office and within a block and a half of our house. And so where did Deb and I go when we evacuated? To the west in LAX, of course, having just left there days ago for the road rally. We went back there. And uh, it was amazing, about a third of the people in the hotel, even though it was quite far away from where we live, were um, refugees, or eva I, they're technically called evacuees, I'd like to call them refugees, from our little town. Um, and uh, there were people there that had lost homes. It's, it's very heartbreaking. We thought that only about 150 homes were lost, but I heard an update yesterday afternoon that 1,100 structures in Southern California alone um, burned up, and most of those were homes. Um, you see the flames on TV and they look like they're three feet high. When you're actually near the flames, they're more like 20 feet high and it was 20 miles wide. But don't be fooled. It's not like a giant wall of, uh, of flame like you would expect, you know, the, the tsunami version from the ocean. What it is actually are these embers that come from the palm fronds because we have palm trees all over the place, and the, the palm fronds let chunks of burning embers from those go flying. Not the leafy part, but the stocky part. It's like styrofoam in the middle and like a tortoise shell on the outside. And so those get picked up by the, the heat and the smoke because fires create their own little weather system. And these things travel for a mile or two and then land, even though most people have tile roofs in Southern California, probably the rest of California as well, um, all that really does is protect the, the underlayment on your roof from the sun. The tile, uh, there are cracks and pieces of embers get between the cracks and the tile, you know, where they come together. And then it hits the underlayment, which is made out of like felt, plastic and tar or something like that. And that's what starts the roofs on fire. And that's what burns down the houses. So yeah, a block and a half from our houses, um, we live in a neighborhood where, you know, it's like three models of homes that you can buy. So our exact model burnt up a block and a half away. And it's kind of weird looking at, wow, if our house burned, that's what it would look like. So my heart goes out to the families that lost their homes and people that lost loved ones. Very few people. We only had, I think, believe three deaths in Southern California. and. Um, potentially thousands in, in Northern California at the campfire. And that like, not like campfire girls, like campfire, two words. Um, 
but until you've been through it, you can't really understand it. But the firefighters, that you can understand. I mean, these guys are absolutely amazing. And not just the professional firefighters, but they use firefighters that just work on forest fires. Even prisoners from prison prisons are let out. And have, if you see firefighters on TV in orange jumpsuits, those folks are prisoners. Uh, if they have yellow jumpsuits, they are the other kind of firefighters. And the work that they do, unbelievable. And I'm so happy to see signs uh, on cross, you know, like bridges that cross over the freeway out by us with all kinds of signs thanking the firefighters. They really deserve it. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen who fight fires. You people are seriously brave. And I mean, the first crew of firefighters worked for two days without any sleep. One poor firefighter decided to lie down on PCH Pacific Coast Highway and take a little nap because they had the road closed off and somebody drove over him. He lived, but maybe not the best place to take a nap is what I'm thinking. Um, so anyway, uh, that's that. Thank you. Oh, by the way, thank you to all of you guys. Um, literally got so many emails from people, both to the company and people found my personal email address and just sent tons of emails. Uh, some people even found my cell phone number and were um, texting me, wishing me well, wishing us well. And so thank you for all that. And I'm really sorry I couldn't answer them all, but frankly, for the first three days, just sitting in a hotel room on the edge of the bed, just watching, we literally watched stuff in our neighborhood, like, oh my God, we know that house burning on TV. And then my friend Rob Shirelli, who many of you know from the Taxi Road Rally, he lives about four or five houses away from us. He had not evacuated. He sent his family to a hotel and for some reason he stuck it out. Why, I do not know. Bad move, Rob. Anyway, Rob called me and goes, Lasco. It's Shirelli. I'm looking at the hill behind your house. It's on fire. And I thought, okay, so if the hill behind our house is on fire and houses in the neighborhood are going, our house is going to go. But it didn't. So happy to say that. Um, and the Shirelli's house is fine as well. I also want to say uh, thanks to Nelly at the Westin for giving us a room in very short order. So that's that. Um, now let's do a little Christmas gift buying guide. And I, I, I literally had like 15 minutes to come up with a show idea. So today's show is going to be short. Uh, what I was, okay, so I've got a stack of books on my desk and we're going to go through them one at a time. Some of these you've seen many times on the show. I cannot endorse this book strongly enough. First of all, I am the publisher and I make a couple of bucks if you buy one, but I'm the only publisher in the world that I know of that will say, if you buy this book and you don't like it, send it back in resellable condition and I will personally, there I am, I will personally refund your money. Shortcuts to songwriting for film and TV. Why is it so wonderful? Because it's the only book on the market that talks about how the, the approach to songwriting is different for film and television than it is for writing hit songs. Now, could you have a hit song that ends up in an episode of a TV show or a film? Absolutely. But there are certain approaches to songwriting for film and TV that are different. Uh, the biggest one for my money is writing universal lyrics instead of, you know, I met Susie in Paris under the Eiffel Tower on New Year's Eve. The first time we kissed, it, you know, the lights went on and too much specificity. Um, you would talk about how Susie makes you feel or your relationship. Uh, you wouldn't say Susie. You would just say, she makes me feel incredibly wonderful. <laughs> Something very general like that. It's all about expressing how you feel in general terms rather than the spe spe specifics of 
a story that could conflict with the scene. Even if you had something that didn't conflict with the scene and, you know, you had a song about firefighters being really brave, it would probably be cheesy in the context. So you could have a song about bravery, but not firefighters being brave. So anyway, that is one of the 114 things in this book. And everybody I know that has purchased this book is like, oh my gosh, I didn't buy it for like a year after I bought the other book because I thought it'd be pretty much the same thing. It's not. Look, I look really good with the red face, don't you think? Um, Brie thought that was funny. Uh, anyway, that book, I swear, uh, if you want to get songs in TV shows and movies, buy that book. And of course, this one, bestseller, Shortcuts to Hit Songwriting, 126 Proven Techniques for Writing Songs that Sell. Look, I'm yellow this time. Yeah, kind of orange. Um, anyway, again, if you buy this book and you don't think it's everything I say it is, which is, I say it's wonderful, um, I will refund your money. Okay, all these other books I have, in fact, read. This one I have not read. This one was just given to me at the road rally. This one is from our friend Adonis Electris. Whoa, it's amazing how that can change the color. Anyway, Adonis Electris is a longtime taxi member. He lives on the island of Cyprus off the coast of Greece, and he's a really good guy, and he wrote this book, which is a zillion interviews with great composers, several of whom, like Tommy Tellerico and Sharon Farber. There are several composers in this book that I actually know, and he asked them five questions. So I've skimmed this book, and I've read certain interviews. Jack Wall, I know. He's a top video game composer. Um, let's see, who else do I know in this book? Well, it doesn't matter. Oh, Dan Graham just had dinner. Dan and his wife were in town from uh, the UK the other night. My wife and I went out with uh, Dan and his lovely wife, Sophie, and had a really good time. So um, if you want to read a really intelligently interviewed, uh, a compilation of intelligently asked questions of really good composers, that's your book. So you want to become a media composer? Whoops, there we go, there's the question mark. I really like the way I look in orange. Um, next on my list is Writing Production Music for TV by Steve Barden. Um, Steve's been on the show a couple of times. He was also on a panel um, at the road rally. This book is incredibly good. I highly recommend it. I've read it probably one and a half times. Why a half? Because I went back and researched some stuff in this book for an episode of Taxi TV after I read it cover to cover, as you can see. Steve was impressed that I read it. Um, this book, Murphy's Laws of Songwriting, the book by Ralph Murphy, um, completely and utterly different from Robin Frederick's book. Excellent, excellent book. If you know Ralph, and you've probably met him at a road rally, if you go to road rallies, and you should, um, Ralph is Canadian by birth, I believe, or born in the UK, grew up in Canada, and has lived in Nashville for a big chunk of his life. He's a Southern gentleman. Well, using the word gentleman might be going too far, but <laughs> Ralph is... Uh, an amalgamation of like 50 years of hanging out with hit songwriters and the stuff that comes out of his mouth. I play golf with him once a year for two days in a row and the stuff that comes out of his mouth is like, 
he's the wise old man of songwriting and everything that wise old man knows made it into this book it's really good so while i can't offer you a refund on this one if you don't like it i can tell you that yes i'm biased because he's one of my closest friends um i wouldn't be holding this book up i would just forget to hold it up if you know but you gotta have this book if you don't and you know what? You may not want to buy these for yourself for a Christmas or Hanukkah present. So maybe you should like send a link to your spouse or your family members and say, hey, watch this episode because that guy at Taxi really knows his books. Um, I'm going to hold up this one first. This was the first book by Mr. Dean Crepane, Demystifying the Cue by Dean Crepane. Um, can't say enough good stuff about this book. All these books are must-have books, and I would say that probably 90% of our successful members have actually purchased and read these books. That's what successful people do. And then this book, Demystifying the Genre, was the follow-up. Um, you got to read these books. All these books, the one thing that they all have in common is that they're easy to read and they're not written. I have a thing against books written by like college professors who are trying to impress other professors with how good they can write um, or how well they can write. See, because I talk like a normal person, at least I think I do. And I used to hate to read. And then in year number two of Taxi, we had an earthquake, the aforementioned Northridge earthquake. And my wife and I had to evacuate our home, which was trashed. And we moved in with some friends temporarily in Encino, California, not that far from where we were living at the time. They put us in a bedroom with a parquet wood floor and a four-poster bed that looked like Abraham Lincoln and slept in it in the White House. And every time we would get aftershocks, which were about every 15 minutes, and they were pretty significant there for a couple of months, but I will never forget the first three or four nights staying in that house. Every time we get aftershocks, the bed would vibrate across the floor. And after three or four aftershocks, I'd have to get out of bed, push the bed, you know, like six feet back to the wall again. I couldn't sleep. Who the hell could sleep when you're worried that the roof, the whole house is going to cave in on you? I mean, it, it was terrifying. So I read a book. You know what? I'm going to go get this book. I need a prop. Now I can't find the book. I'm looking. I'll be right back. Where's the book? Not there. Okay. Well, we're not going to do that book today. Um, couldn't find the book. Anyway, it was a book on how to write headlines. And it was a couple hundred pages long. And the book was actually given to me by a woman that had gone to a $25,000 weekend-long seminar um, about writing copy and writing headlines. And it was written by a guy named Jay Abraham. And I read that book cover to cover every night for a week because I couldn't sleep. And there was no TV. There was no electricity if memory serves. So uh, I read that book sitting in this giant four poster bed, I think with a flashlight like this. <laughs> and uh, I read the book every night cover to cover. Um, and that's what got me started. I realized that books that were written like one person speaking to another were actually really easy to read. Um, I absorbed the material and I think I became a pretty good copywriter because that book set me on a path to read other books about copywriting and marketing and stuff. So thank you, Jay Abraham. And your, oh, the book sold for $600 a copy. 
Mine was free. It was given to me by a friend that said, please return it to me when you're done. I still have it. Thank you, Raleigh. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> and yes, I still have your damn book. Um, so there you go. Those are the books, and I don't know what else to talk about. So let's do a little, what do you think about um, Ask Michael Anything? Just saying, either that or I could end the show. Um, I'm looking to see what you guys are saying in the chat. If those of you who have never watched a show before going, gosh, th this guy is like super disorganized and really unprofessional. Normally I'm not, but today I am. <laughs> when you find out that your guest had an emergency and has to cancel right before the show and then the computer's dying, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Marion Laird says, we always like Ask Michael Anything. So can we ask for listings guidance? Sure, you can ask for anything you want, Paul. Um, Bria, you may want to write down some notes if this stuff goes flying by kind of quickly. Um, Okay, uh, specifically, what kind of listings guidance would you like? Do I eat pizza and what's your favorite topping? Yes, uh, if you're asking me, um, I love pizza. I like it well done and I like everything on my pizza, even light anchovies, but no onions, no garlic. Onions and garlic don't agree with me much. Um, Who's your favorite? Tom says, who's your favorite Teletubby? I, I actually like the, the rabbits better than the Teletubbies. Um, what's the main export of Bolivia? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Jody Whip says that she sent you the blah, blah, blah. Oh, Jody, thank you so much. <laughs> Jody Whip sent me the... <laughs> Love it. Um... Christos is asking, when will you guys be able to forward submissions for the, for the rally, from the rally? Um, when will we be able to forward the submissions from the rally? I don't hold me to this, but I believe that that stuff just got finished on Friday of last week. Um, as far as the screeners, I don't know that it's been sent out to the people. And please, dear God. I just got an email from a library owner that told me they met somebody at the road rally and gave them their email address. And this person is emailing them multiple times a day, asking them, well, what should I do about this? And what should I do about that? And can you tell me how to uh, do meta tagging? And can you tell me, you know, uh, what sample rate? Asking all this stuff of a library owner, you can find it on the internet. They have other stuff to do other than acting as educators. Um, so hang on, I just saw something go by, um, something about, oh, why do some listings have fees in them and some do not? Um, if we get the fees, we put them in. Sometimes people don't know, sometimes they're just so quick to blast out the information. I'm looking for this and I need it by tomorrow. They haven't even bothered to ask the question on their end. They could probably guess what the fee is gonna be, at least get in the ballpark. If we get the fee, you get the fee. Um, Okay, real question, Michael. Uh, I have one. 
Oh, Bria's got one. Never mind. Uh, Michael, what were your favorite moments from the rally? What were my favorite moments for the from the road rally? Anybody who's a road rally veteran knows what my answer to this is going to be. My favorite moment of the road rally is at the end where I say, thank you very much. See you next year. Goodbye. I'm out. It is such a relief every year when the road rally's over. And I'm so proud of the staff and, and well, a little proud of myself, but just proud of us all as a group that we are able to pull that thing off. Um, you cannot imagine the amount of work that goes into the planning. And I will be the first to admit that I sit here a little bit angry sometimes on the weekends on the run up to the road rally. Not, not angry, but maybe feeling a little sorry for myself, maybe a little pissed off, but I literally work every single weekend starting somewhere around middle of July up until the road rally. So after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of having no days off, the attitude does sour and I have to remind myself, okay, I'm doing this because I want it to be really good. I want it to be perfect. I want it to go off without a hitch. And then as we get closer and closer, last few weeks, the staff starts getting involved and then about 10 days before we, um, all get involved and we do a read through. Hey, Bria, can you see if you can find a copy of the Bible that is probably sitting out there on that shelf? Yeah, of course. Uh, so we, we have this thing called the Rally Bible that literally starts talking about what everybody on the staff needs to do starting on the Tuesday before the rally. Registration is on Thursday, but for us it really starts with stuff like picking up the rental truck. Yay. Uh, picking up the rental truck, thinking about a, a million little details. Thank you. So this is from the 2017 Road Rally. And there you go. Uh, that's my backup copy. And as you can see, it starts on Tuesday. And we literally, every little thing that everybody does is laid out like a script in a timeline. Um, might be old fashioned, but it works. And people always say, gee, you guys are so organized. That's because we create this document. But creating this document is a giant pain in the butt. Um, I usually do it myself. On the first pass, I come in on a weekend. Uh, hard to work at home on the rally run-up, I got to say. I need, like, utter silence. And uh, then when I get through with it, we sit down with the whole staff and we do, like, a table reading so that people can go, oh, look, boss, you've got me in two places at once. And then... I'll go through, make changes, then Bria took it this year and cleaned it up at the end. I think that to some extent, well, maybe not this year. Angel and Deb, no, they didn't do anything on the, on the Bible this year, but they have on other years. Anyway, it's a lot of work, um, but that's why the rally works so well. And I saw some, a question about... I probably have it. Okay. I it was from Charles Wilson. Michael, this was probably the best road rally I've been to to date. You and your staff did a great job. Thank you. Look, oh, thanks, Charles. That wasn't a question so much <laughs> as a comment, but we'll take flattery when we can get it. Um, yeah, Peter Rahill has a question about the rally. He said, narrowing it down, what was um, the best surprise moment of last panel at the closing? Oh, had to be Wild Man Chris. Had to be. I didn't get to hear you weren't in there for that? Oh my God. Okay, so there's a, a longtime taxi member named Wild Man Chris. Um, I don't even, you know, there's so much I want to say, but I really can't. Um, 
anyway, every year Chris comes, um, and it's really difficult for him to make it to the road rally, um, financially, emotionally, physically, all kinds of, of impediments. Um, and he wouldn't mind me telling you that. And so every year he, he loves to rap and he does stuff that can be, let's just say inappropriate. Okay, <laughs> to put it mildly, sometimes. Anyway, this year, what was the song called? A, a Baby Punch My Face. Baby Punch My Face. And his song was, in fact, drawn at the last panel at the Road Rally and played, and the crowd went ape. And before you know it, people are like on their feet singing the chorus. Chris was standing up just completely out of his mind with joy. The people on the panel were loving it. Um, that was one of my favorite rally moments. First of all, just to see how happy he was getting a song played at the road rally, finally. He said that he had already resolved after coming to 17 road rallies that if he didn't get something played this year, he was never coming back again. And there you go, it got played and he was happy and you had to be there. You just had to be there. Paul House asks, uh, I would like to know if singer-songwriter means you must be the singer or can I uh, pay a session vocalist? Um, so the question was, on a singer-songwriter pitch, do you have to be the singer? Um, I can't say this is true 100% of the time, but probably 95% of the time, Paul, that uh, it's more about the style. Uh, and... You know, if they're looking for a singer-songwriter artist, yeah, you'd have to be the singer on it. Um, I know that we've got some listings running right now that a music supervisor is looking for stuff for a big hit TV show, and it, it, it's worded something like songs from singer-songwriter style artists and bands. Um, I don't think they care. It's just got to be a song that works in the context of the show and has to be in the singer-songwriter style. I will say that the singer-songwriter style has actually morphed quite a bit over the years. Um, uh, you know, back in the day, it was like, you know, Carole King, James Taylor, uh, people like that, uh, singer-songwriter stuff, you know, they were singer-songwriters and that was the style, but now it, it's people like Bon Iver, um, it, it's not, you know, strummy acoustic guitar stuff. Um, it can be layered pads. Uh, I Frankly, I honestly have a hard time narrowing down, like, what's the difference between some forms of indie pop and what would be considered modern singer-songwriter style? Um, you really have to spend a lot of time listening to music and staying current to really know. Um, I, I don't even know where to go with that. It's such a big topic and such a, there's so many pieces of advice that I could give, but might actually set you on a wrong path. But the best piece of advice I can give you is to spend a lot of time listening. Uh, I, I, it really bothers me when people say, uh, I want to be in the music business, but I can't stand the music today, so I don't listen. Well, so much of what people are looking for is contemporary. And if you don't know what's going on in the contemporary market, then you won't sound contemporary. And then you're going to be pretty ticked off when the music you submit doesn't get forwarded because it doesn't sound contemporary. So you could just give up and put your tail between your legs, go home and go, oh, screw the industry. But you know what? It's just really not that hard to listen to other people's music and go, okay, I don't like that, but what can I learn from it? And sooner or later, you're going to hear stuff that 
you wouldn't think you would like, but then you go, I like it. How do I know? Because I've done that. Um, I have to force feed myself new music because it's my job. I, I have to know what, I'm getting hot. <laughs> you have to know, thank you, Brit Fox. Mm -hmm. You have to know what's contemporary um, in order to make music that is contemporary. Um, I gotta scroll down. Um, Glenn Johnson wants to know, question, bottom of the barrel question. Well, that really makes me want to answer it, Glenn. Uh, do all listings end up in the forwards blog? I've been waiting for you, 18108EE, um, to show up for a while. Um, let's see. I can answer that one. Bria can answer that one. Um, yes, if there are forwards. If there's nothing forwarded, then no. It um, won't show I, up. Yeah, I'd have to check. I don't know if that one's been, if you've, you've it'll only be there if you've received a uh, word back on it, because um, we do, I do it the day after. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll look into that one. Um, Paul House also asked, thank you for answering my question. Also, with a $100,000 listing, I'm tempted to get one in, but it's not something I've tried before. Should I stick to the genre I know? Um, you know what? Personally, it, it depends on your personal finance situation. If you can afford to blow five bucks, take a shot, although... You know, don't take a wild shot. Here's the one thing you should not do is pitch something that is not even close to the genre, or close to what they're asking for, but you're going to pitch it anyway because you just think it's so darn good that the screener's going to hear it and go, well, I don't care that it doesn't answer what the brief or the listing asked for. It's just so good that they're going to hear what a genius I am, how wonderful the song is. They're going to forward it off to the music supervisor who's going to say, I don't care what we're looking for for the show. This is so good that I'm going to play it for the executive producer. And then the executive producer is going to say, wow, you're right. Even though we were looking for a particular kind of thing, and this isn't anything near that, and it doesn't really work with the scene that we're trying to put it in, it's just so friggin' good, I'm going to put it in the show anyway. You know what? As a matter of fact, let's rewrite the scene so that the song fits the new rewrite of the scene. Not going to happen. So in that case, don't do it. Um... Uh, you know, we would much prefer to see our members get forwarded and get picked up and make it into TV episodes. And the scenario I just described, not a very high likelihood. You'd be better off taking that five bucks, going to Vegas, and putting it on a roulette wheel on black. Um, any chance Rob will give out some more software soon? You know what? Um, just had dinner with Rob and his wife last night, and I meant to ask him about that. But, you know, I will try and get him back on the show and have him give out a code to give away some software for you guys. Um, we are told that the $5 fee is to deter inappropriate material for listings. It's true. Ever since I started the company, the $5 fee is really called the... Discouragement fee. Discouragement fee. She knew the answer. I'm very proud of you. Um, because, yeah, we look, nobody wants to sit there and listen to a bunch of music that's clearly off base. And it's not to protect the feelings of the screeners, but it's to get to weed out the inappropriate stuff and the wrong stuff before it ever gets to the screeners. 
they would be much, it's a much more fruitful endeavor for them to spend their time listening to music that at least is in the ballpark and going not only is this, this in the ballpark but it's really good or it's not good enough those are the determinations that are really key to success um so try and nail it um, um Ann house is asking what genres are in, of instrumentals are most in demand okay good question Ann house wants to know which genres genres um are most in demand for instrumentals uh, I think we talked about this on one of the panels at the Road Rally, but clearly hip-hop, um, clearly EDM, clearly beat-driven pop, um, and right about now, the people who are into strummy acoustic guitar stuff um, from the James Taylor era are going, wah, 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 wah. Or they're, whoops, or they're doing that. Um, I know it's frustrating when you hear all this beat-driven stuff, all this programmed music out there and go, but that's not what I do. You know, I play an acoustic guitar. I play bass. The music I make comes from organic instruments. I understand the frustration, but you know what? You need to listen to me. <laughs> because I'm always telling you guys, watch those swampy alligator killing shows. Um, watch virtually anything on HGTV. There are plenty of shows that use acoustic-based, whether it's acoustic piano or acoustic guitar, that they use cues created with acoustic organic instruments, and it's not all beat-driven stuff. Um, so, you know, hey, my wife forces me to watch House Hunters. Um, if I put that finger in my mouth deep enough, I could actually puke on screen. I've never done that before. But when I think of watching House Hunters or um, Love It or List It, I'm sorry, HGTV. Uh, I, I really liked the show with the couple from Texas, though. Fixer Upper. Um, Fixer Upper. That show I like. Watch some episodes of Fixer Upper and listen to the cues on that. They're all done with acoustic guitars. Some of them with just... A single acoustic guitar so there is a whole a cadre of um, music that you can make using the stuff you do if you don't do programmed beat driven stuff okay uh, listen to Michael closer closer yes 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 uh, my wife Carl Wurzbach wants to know my wife asked me what it means uh, if that a song is forwarded I don't have a good answer what does happen? Okay, um, that's a good question. I hope your wife is watching the show. Um, hello, Mrs. Wurzbach. Um, when a song is forwarded from us, you gotta remember somebody requested. The entire concept of Taxi is built on the fact that I used to be a shoe salesman. I really, truly was a shoe salesman. My parents owned a little department store in a farm town in central Illinois, and one summer I had to manage the shoe department because the shoe lady had surgery. Later on in life, when I was like 17, 18 years old, I worked at the Village Bootery on Kendall Drive in South Miami. And I'm a pretty decent shoe salesman, gotta say. Um, and I quickly learned that if a lady walks in and says, can I please have a size 7.5B Potoswa pump that can be dyed to match the pink of this bridesmaid dress, 
the last thing I want to do is go into the stockroom and come out with a Bass Weijin 9.5D, um, you know, show her a, a man's shoe and the wrong size and the wrong color and with no heel, right? You're laughing. You're going, well, that would be idiotic. The same thing is true in the music industry. People aren't just randomly looking for, man, I wish I could just like kick back, smoke some weed in my office today and hear some really groovy tunes that I could put in a TV show. They are looking for specific things. They may not always be right in what they think would work, but they have an idea, certainly a range. So they tell us what they need. We tell our members what is needed. Our members submit music and then the screeners are listening is it on target and is it really good? And if it meets those two criteria, we send it to them. That's called a forward. So now that it's been forwarded, it's in the hands of a music supervisor, let's say for a TV show. So the music supervisor will then watch the stuff against the video for the scene and go, nope, now, first, actually, before they watch it against the video, they will literally like skim it because they've done this for so long and they've listened to so much music. You want to believe that they're sitting there going, wow, that's a great intro. This song is going to be really good. And then they listen to the first verse and they go, man, I love that lyric. This is real. Oh, listen to that chorus. This song is wonderful. I love this song. They don't. They listen to like, two seconds of the intro just to hear like does it hit them that the instrumentation would be right for the vibe of what they're looking for and if something catches them literally in two to three seconds they will skip forward and listen to two to five seconds of the verse and then a couple seconds of the chorus and then they skip up to the end of the song because they want to hear the outro they want to hear um, the button ending the stinger ending how does it end does it finish big does it sound like something that would work well going into the next scene? So that's the reality of how they listen most of the time. And I'm talking like 98% of the time for TV. They are literally skipping through. Oftentimes they're looking at the waveform going, does it have obvious by looking at the waveform edit points? So if I wanna, if I really like the way it ends and I really like the way it begins, but I don't like the first verse, could I just like go right from the intro you know, which might just be a drum turn, brum, boom, into the song. So they're going to go chop that intro and go into the last chorus because that's usually the biggest chorus and then go right to the ending, which is a big finish and works well in the next scene. That's the way they think. They're not listening to it going, oh, I just love this song. It resonates for me. It makes me feel so good. It makes me miss my mother or it makes me miss my girlfriend or it makes me want to propose to my girlfriend or it makes me want to go buy a dog or a new car none of that matters it's all about does it work in that scene and they literally just go grab little snippets um, frank palazzello is a good friend of mine he's a music supervisor works on several big tv shows and frank once told me um, he listened to a thousand auditioned a thousand pieces of music in an hour and he stands by that and other supervisors on the panel are going yeah all the time so that's the reality and i hope that answer answers your question mrs wurzbach next um, uh, james carvalho um, asked what uh was your starting mix bus chain back in the day my starting mix bus chain back. Jimmy Carvalho, Mr. Pizza. By the way, thank you for helping with the uh, taxi cab at the Road Rally this year. Um, it, Jimmy put the battery in the cab, right? 
Was he the, did My he? My dad put the battery in, but he got it running. Okay. <laughs> we wouldn't, we wouldn't have gotten it running that, without him. That cab. I don't even want to go into the cab, but thank you, James. Um, okay, my mix bus chain back in the day, you got to remember when I started working in studios, consoles didn't even have channel strips yet. If you wanted to work on the console, you literally lifted up the entire faceplate of the console, put a couple of two by fours in there to prop it up, and then backed your way into the belly pan of the console with a soldering iron, preferably a pair of glasses, and that's how you worked on a console. So I do come from the Jurassic era of recording. Um, while I was still active, uh, consoles with channel strips that you could pull out and replace and swap um, came out. And when I started, 16 track machines existed and 24 tracks just started arriving on the scene. So um, basically what I would do would be, I'm trying to think of various consoles I used. Um, like an MCI 5 series console, 500 series console, terrible sounding console. Pretty easy to use. The topography was good. It did have channel strips. Um, it was slightly a precursor to an SSL um, and modern day consoles in general. Um, but I didn't use anything. Uh, I, If anything, if anything, I would use a stereo compressor and use just a little bit of soft compression on it. Um, and that was about it. Once I uh, moved up to an SSL, I just used the uh, compressor that was already strapped to the mix bus on the SSL and loved the way that thing sounded, uh, frankly. And I had my last control room, I had um, LA-2As, tube limiters, actual Teletronics um, LA-2As. I had DBX-165s, I had LA-3s, um, which I love the LA-3s, by the way. I think they're highly underrated. People are just starting to appreciate them now. That was my go-to compressor. I had 1176s that I liked. I didn't love them as much as some other people. Um, DBX-165s uh, re had really fast attack and release. They sounded really good on things like kick drums. Um, so that's it, you know. Uh, Back then, we didn't stack 27 kick drums uh, digitally to make a kick drum sound good. We did it by moving the pillow in and out of the drum itself, moving the microphone in and out, angling the microphone a little bit off axis to get rid of some of the woofy bottom end that we didn't need, adding maybe uh, you know 2.5K to get a little attack on it. Those are the ways that we got sounds back then. Um, you guys today that stack up, you know, like, 15, 20, 30 kick drums of all different varieties. What a bunch of wussies. <laughs> Come on, be a real man. Know how to move that microphone around. Okay, anybody else I can offend? Still more. <laughs> um, Dan Weber says he always wanted to ask you, did they introduce you in the audience on American Idol about seven or eight years ago? Was channel surfing only caught the tail end? No, I was never introduced in the audience in American Idol, but I will tell you something. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this or not, but I was actually asked to be a, a judge on the first round of American Idol, year number one. Um, before Randy joined the show, they already had two or three judges and one of the judges got kicked off before they started. And one morning I came to work and our then vice president, Doug Minnick said, some guy from Fox just called and wants to talk to you. And I was like, why? I don't know. So I called the guy up and he goes, we're launching a new show called American Idol. 
and we're interested in you being a judge and we leave in three days to start touring the country looking for contestants and i said well i'm flattered that you asked but i own a little company that's just starting to do really well and i can't just like say see you later family see you later company i'm gonna hit the road for 10 weeks i think it was a 10-week commitment and be a judge on this tv show i i don't have time for that and thank you very much goodbye and about an hour and a half later, the phone rang again, and it was the, a lawyer from Fox calling up saying, um, we've all looked at your bio and your photo, and people in this room know who you are, and you've got the right personality. Will you be a judge on the show? And I said, no, I'm really flattered. Once again, I turned him down three times that day. The last person to call said, will you at least grab your entertainment attorney and come down to the Fox lot tomorrow morning and meet with us and discuss this? And I went, okay. Um, and it didn't pay all that much, frankly. Uh, I did ask on the third phone call what it paid, and I went, really? Not that much. Um, so the next morning, uh, I got an email or a phone call, I can't remember now, and they said, we could tell you weren't interested. Really? What was your first clue? So we hired your friend Randy Jackson uh, late last night. He's locked in. Thank you very much. So there you go. Randy, I did just solid, bro. <laughs> Dog. <laughs> I can't even do the dog thing. Um, I'm looking for another cool question. Do you have one? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, are there any more details on the scene uh, for the 100K listing? I'm trying to write lyrics for it as we speak. Um, no. Anything that we know, you know. Um, when Do you know when the deadline is on that one? I've it's forgotten. Like next Monday or something. I can I can tell you right now. Can you um, no, I mean, literally, there's never anything that we hold back. You guys should all know that. That it's not like we keep some information secret or we tell the screeners something that we're not allowed to tell you. I, there are times where I personally or somebody on the staff might get video of a scene and we can't play it for you. But we will then, if we're allowed, synopsize it. Is that a word? Synopsize it? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and tell you, you know, it's a scene about a, a grandmother and her beloved pet Yorkshire Terrier. Let's do it on Sunday. Sunday is a deadline. Um, so, no, we don't know anything else. It, 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 I got to say, sometimes I feel bad putting out these like $25,000, $100,000 listings because I know that people just, it, it's like, I only buy four lottery tickets a year. You know, it's got to be over like $300 million or $500 million or something. And okay, there's a gas station that's like 300 feet from the office. Excuse me, I'll go buy a lottery ticket. Um, I don't know why, because the odds are 300 million to one. But I figure, you know, for a couple of bucks, what the hell? So I get it that people want to submit for these things. But sometimes they send stuff in. You go, what the hell were they thinking? And I think it's a classic case of, I know it doesn't fit what the listing is asking for, but they're just going to love it so much that everything they've asked for a listing just doesn't matter. It'll all get thrown out and they're going to go with my piece of music because it's that good. And then these people are just crushed when they get back the, the critique from the screener saying, sorry, it wasn't on target, but it was great. Anyway, I feel bad. I really do. Um, Anything on your end? I'm scanning and not seeing. Yeah, uh, James Haggerty asks, is a forward the same thing as getting your track into a bin? 
I'm thinking of Laurel's session at the rally, still trying to understand. No. Um, getting it forwarded means that it went to the party that asked for the music. Now, they've got to listen to it, and different parties, different industry pros will treat a forward differently. If it's a record company and they're looking for artists, they're going to listen to it with one set of ears in that perspective. And then if they hear something they like, they're going to go online and they're going to see, does the artist have a social footprint, a lot of followers? Do they look like their music sounds? Um, are they playing any shows? Do they have a following that goes turns out for their shows? Things like that. Um, if it's uh, an A&R person listening to songs for Beyonce, let's say, and for somebody at Beyonce's level, they're going to have multiple producers working on the record. She's got a management team. She's got her husband, Jay-Z. Um, she's got the label head. She's got her A&R person. All those people are involved in the process. And of course, um, her, Beyonce, uh, they're all involved in the, in the process of picking songs. So um, I remember once that somebody in Faith Hills Camp told me that they listened to 5,000 songs that had come to them through professional relationships. Um, probably all Nashville publishers back then, because this was probably 10 years ago. Um, and so 5,000 songs got considered. Now, did all 5,000 songs get heard by Faith, her publisher, her record label, her A&R person, the president of the label, her manager, all those people? No. It was probably, the manager probably heard 800 of them. The A&R person probably heard 1,400 of them. Um, somebody else heard 1,000. And they each called together their favorites of the bunch. And, and frankly, they don't pick stuff and go, yeah, this is pretty good. I should probably play this for the other people. They're picking stuff that they walk into the meeting and go, this has got to be a hit for Faith. They're, they know that they're um, putting their reputation on the line. So they're listening for with that set of ears and listening at that standard and then bringing it into a meeting, playing it for the other people, trying to get consensus from them that this song should go on Faith's record. Now, if she's listened to 500, she probably in the end cuts somewhere between 50, maybe even 100 songs that they will actually record and have her sing a vocal on. And then they will whittle those, let's say 50 down to 25 and then work with those 25 and they start running those 25 by radio people by other people in other areas of the label to try and build consensus and excitement among them before the final order is picked for the record and i'm sure that faith has at her level um you know final say so she's not going to let something go on a record for instance um a song about a divorce may not make it on her record because she is married and doesn't want to talk about that. Um, I believe that she's fairly religiously observant and wouldn't want to put stuff on her record that would be out of character with her faith. So considerations like that are, are go into the stew of what gets picked for a record for an artist. Now, moving on to film and TV, our favorite subject on Taxi TV. Um, if it's for a reality TV show, and uh, you mentioned bins, so I'm going to talk about bins. Um, bins were brought up by Laurel Ostrander, who we opened up this year's Road Rally with. She is an excellent television editor. 
um, very high level, very smart, very capable, and very articulate young woman that I just adore her. Um, she's such a great teacher, and she brings so much to the audience at the Road Rally. So she kept mentioning bins. Well, a bin back in the old days when they used to cut 35 millimeter um, film, they would keep, there would be a thing that looked, it was a cloth bin with a metal frame, and on top of the bin was a metal bar that they would have things like clothespins, and they would clip various strips of film that the editors were using. And because they were so long, they didn't want them dangling all over the floor and getting stepped on and scratched up. So the tail end of those film strips would hang in the bin. Well, the same thing was true when they were editing audio because the audio came on 35 millimeter um, strips of, of whatever that was, celluloid, celluloid, I think, um, with little gear, you know, little teeth in there, little holes for the gears to turn. Um, and they would take those pieces of magnetically striped, it was clear with a magnetic stripe, and, the, and those were called mags. And they would load them on these giant machines that were called tractors, and they would have like 10 of them or 20 of them or 30 of them. So tractor number one might be um, dialogue, might be actor number one. Uh, tractor number two would be actor number two. Uh, tractor number three would be street noise. Tractor number four would have a mag stripe on there that might have been music track number one. Um, tractor number five would be music track number two and so on. And so it was like a multi-track machine, but it was a bunch of single track machines that were all hooked up to run in sync using a 60 hertz sine wave that locked them all together, okay? So yes, back in the old days, back in my day, um, you would actually hit a button on the console and go uh, talk to a guy who could have been literally on the other side of the street in another building or on another floor in the building and you would talk to them and say retard tractor number three which in this case i think was actor number three or something so if you were to see a movie and the actor was speaking and lips were blah, 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 you know like like the old japanese dubbed movies you would tell them advance or retard tractor number three advance or retard by you know seven frames tractor number four and that's how things got moved around and so the stuff that didn't make it onto the tractors but eventually might be used was held in a bin and a bin again was like a canvas bin it was about two and a half feet wide by maybe 18 inches deep and over it was like part of the metal frame and over that frame you know there was a metal bar um and and like little clippy things like clothespins and so that was the bin that held the audio nowadays it's a digital bin like that okay so it's literally nothing more than a file it's a digital bucket that holds all this stuff so when something is forwarded from taxi and it goes to a music library the music library then decides is this good enough is it on target enough and is it something that my library can make money with because my clients ask for we just had a, a listing today that went out for our dispatch members that was for pizzicato christmas music so that would be easy to understand uh, the uses for pizzicato Christmas music, do 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 do, with maybe a little 
bell or little tubular bells or sleigh bells thrown in there very judiciously, by the way. Um, that would be great for a scene in a movie where somebody's sneaking around shaking packages under the tree or Santa's coming down the chimney at 4 a.m. and the kids are on the stairs waiting for Santa to come down and eat the cookies. So you could have, you could imagine that kind of um, desperate housewives um, dramedy music done Christmas style. And of course it would all be based on pizzicato uh, strings. So now that music would make it from a taxi member submission to the screener. The screener would decide if it's apropos and really awesome. We send it then to the music library. And if the music library person agrees with us, then they put it in their catalog. And then ultimately their catalog probably gets sent to, let's say in this case, definitely gets sent over to Laurel Ostrander, our video editor friend, but it makes a pit stop at a music supervisor who then listens to everything in the library that looks like it might be appropriate. And they say, okay, this goes in the bin, that goes in the bin. And they will pick several hundred pieces of music that go into this digital bin and they go into files like um, dramedy, happy, sad, different moods or different files within the bin. So when the editor is editing the show and they've got a scene where little Johnny comes downstairs at 5.30 in the morning and the sun's not up yet and he's shaking Christmas packages under the tree trying to figure out what's in them and you hear doo -doo -doo, pizzicato stuff that sounds Christmassy because it's got some tubular bells in it. It all started out with a taxi member submitting to that listing, a screener forwarding it, the library liking it and signing it, and then the library getting sent over to a show that then determines which of the things in that library or in the files sent from that library then make it into the bin for the editor to use. Then after the editor puts the music in the show, the, in most cases, executive producer, which is also called the showrunner, kind of like the general manager of the show, oftentimes the creator of the show and the, you know, the final word, the, grande queso, the big cheese, as it were, um, might watch the show, you know, the final edit and listen to the music. And then they give what are called notes back to the music supervisor and or the editor saying, didn't really like the pizzicato uh, Christmas music when little Johnny was opening the thing because I wanted suspense and you gave me comedic dramedy you know, it's not the right vibe for what I feel should be in that scene. So then they go back to the bin and they try other stuff that is a closer approximation of what the uh, executive producer asked for. So there you go. I hope that answers the question. That was like a semester's worth. Really, in college, they would take an entire semester to teach you what I just taught you in four minutes and 32 seconds. <sighs> Hang on. After that, there's something I really need. You guys, guess what that is? Why, could it be a can of Rockstar? You betcha. This week's episode brought to you by Rockstar Pure Zero Watermelon. Woohoo! Yes. Um, okay, so Paul House asked. Oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> I mean, oh, shoot. Do you need me to get. No, I've got paper towels here. Oh I just want to get it prepared. before. It, yeah, I want to get it before it eats through the finish on the table. Oh, no. Because it will. Well, I've done that before. Oh, no, I got it on my carpet. Okay. Well, while you're cleaning that up, 
Um, based on your explanation, um, I think of how forwarding works. Uh, there isn't a limit on the number of tracks you would forward to a listing if you have 15 spot on and great would you send them on? So it's not just top one or two? That's a great question. How many things will you forward? It's contextual, Paul. Um, is there such a thing as too much of a good thing? Not that often. Um, we think about this a lot. We've talked about it a lot. And I actually considered it a great deal before I launched the company and the whole format that we work within. Um, if it's a record label, we're going to pitch and they're looking for artists, we're going to pitch a handful. We're not going to send them 112. However, we've run listings. Here's a great example. We've had listings. Oh, I hate this guy's car. <laughs> this guy is a brand new BMW 4 Series M and this guy parks it underneath I'm sure you can hear it and sometimes he just sits out there and guns this thing it's just a matter of time till I throw like a concrete block through the window and land it on the hood of his car I will write him a nice note first and then he's just going to hear me saying <laughs> but I will write him a note before I drop a brick on his car I promise um Anyway, uh, what was I talking about? Uh, oh, the number of things that we forward. So when we run listings for... Vroom, vroom, vroom. <laughs> um, I can't even concentrate when that thing's going. Why would you buy a brand new car that sounds like a 100-year-old car? And why would you spend $70,000 on that car and it sounds like that? You know what he needs? A potato in his tailpipe. Bria? I have to go get a potato. You do. <laughs> Bria's <laughs> going to be my potato planter. <laughs> um, anyway, we ran listings, we have run listings a few times where libraries are looking for percussive tracks. Just purely percussion, kind of like the stuff that the Blue Man Group would do, or you know they call it stomp-style percussive tracks. Um, it could be drumline stuff, it could be African drums, it could be Latino stuff with lots of timbales and shakers, just stuff like that. And, and there's actually a trend right now, um, not a huge trend, but somewhat of a trend where people are using a lot of that stuff, I believe, or I've observed in TV commercials. Um, more so than TV shows, and, and to some extent trailers as well, film trailers. Um, so I'm, I hope I get the numbers right in this. I'm doing this from memory, but I think I'm in the ballpark. I kind of remember that we ran one of those listings and we got like 521 submissions. And out of those 521 submissions, 118 of them were on target and the quality was good enough that the library should hear it. Now, do we sit there and go, holy crap, that library owner is going to think we're morons. When they open up that file and see 118 things in there, they're going to think we're out of our freaking minds. But what we do to mitigate the surprise on their end is we might send it to them in three or four chunks where they're getting 20 or 30 at a time. 
excuse me, and we'll, we'll send them an email saying, we got 521 submissions and we've got 118 things that all made it through the screeners. And believe it or not, we actually have people on our staff that double check the screeners work to make sure that the stuff that's going should go. We have people on staff that look at every critique that's done to make sure that the screeners aren't doing any copying and pasting or that they're not writing anything inappropriate or that their spelling is reasonably okay because we can't expect perfection, um, things like that. So we have all these quality control measures that we use and one of them is to make sure that those 118 things are actually good. And once we determine that they are, we mitigate the shock on the receiving end by sending them an email to say, we got a ton of great stuff. You should hear it all, but we're gonna send it to you like unless there's a time element where they need it like right away, we might split it up over three batches of stuff that we send out over a period of a week or 10 days if there is no time element involved. So there you go. So if it's good, it gets forwarded. Uh, there are very few exceptions. I mean, literally, I could probably count the exceptions on that hand, five fingers, over almost 27 years of being in business. There have been a few times where the company said, send me three things or send me no more than five things um, but very very few it's so insignificant in the grand scheme of the number the thousands of listings that we've run that we don't even mention it um, and we might have mentioned it in the listing sometimes i think in those cases we'll say you know something like the bar is going to be extremely high for this and very little stuff is going to be forwarded something like that so there you go next question please Pierre Venio um, asked kind of two that are in the same vein. He said, what would be the biggest trend in instrumental cues in the near future? And besides hip hop, EDM, or dot, 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 what would be the trendy instrumental cues? So I, guess. Uh, I think I answered that already. I don't, I think, I, I can't predict what shows are going to ask for because it depends on the shows. You know, if I were you, if you really want to be on top of your game, go to IMDB, pay for IMDB Pro, and look at the shows that are getting signed, that are going into production in 2019. And if you see shows like um, a reality show with a young couple in their 20s that are traveling all, all over the world doing like a National Geographic, you know, traveling the world on a budget thing, well, what does that tell you? that tells me that they're gonna need world music, they're gonna need African music, they're gonna need Latin music, they're gonna need Asian-inspired music, they're gonna need music for all these locales that they go to. So you can tell yourself what it is that they're gonna need. If you see that a lot of sitcoms, that if reality shows start to die off, which they're not doing anytime soon, I don't believe, and sitcoms are coming back in a big way, well, sitcoms don't generally use a lot of music. Um, they don't, they do sometimes, but not a lot. And the music that they use is generally kind of scored for the show. They don't tend to use a lot of library music. Um, if you notice that cop dramas are a big thing, well, almost every cop drama has scenes with a cop bar, right? Where do they go after work? They go have a beer with their fellow police officers in a bar. What kind of music is playing in a cop bar? Probably something that's fairly rough and tumble, maybe like blues rock, maybe straight up blues, maybe kind of classic rock. It's probably not gonna be 
girl groups or K-pop in a cop bar, right? So this is the way, if you really, really want to be in the industry, this is the way you have to think, is think like an end user, not like a musician that's hoping that people will really appreciate how much heart you put into that lyric. Um, again, don't take this the wrong way, but in the context of film and TV, they're looking for stuff that elevates the mood and enhances their scene more than they're looking for a genius songwriter or genius composer. The two may intersect, but more often than not, it's pretty myopic on their part. They're, they've got the blinders on and they're looking for, does that work against picture? They're not sitting there thinking, oh, that lyric is just breathtaking. Now they might, there are always exceptions to everything. And it could be a scene like, you know, the famous scene in uh, what's the hospital show with the really pretty doctors that I know? Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy. When Dr. Pretty Face or whatever, what was his name? Dr. McDreamy? Dr. McDreamy. See, this is why Bria is in here is she knows stuff that I don't. <laughs> uh, when Dr. McDreamy died, you know, I mean, believe it or not, I found two versions of that scene on the internet with two different songs playing. Now that would be one where they spend an inordinate amount of time making sure that the lyric expresses every thought going through Dr. McDreamy's wife as she says goodbye to him and gets ready to pull the plug. So in that context, they're gonna spend a lot of time thinking about the lyric. If it's a song that's playing off a jukebox in a cop bar with peanut shells on the floor and stale beer stink and cigarettes in the air, it's just gotta, it's gonna sound like this coming from a jukebox 50 feet away and it just has to sound probably masculine. Next question, please. Well, I kind of have one left, um, unless anybody posts uh, more. Uh, Mojo Bone asks, Michael, have you ever kissed the Blarney Stone? <laughs> Mojo Bone wants to know if I've ever kissed the Blarney Stone. Um, no, I'm just gonna leave it at that. Uh, I've never been to Ireland. Um, I did find a stone in our backyard about a week before the road rally. Um, I can't remember the circumstance, but I was in a part of our backyard that gets no sunlight. There's no grass growing there. It's on the side of the house. And I found this stone that almost certainly was shaped by a human being. I mean, it's a piece of granite that's about the size of a half dollar. And it absolutely looks like somebody um, tried to make some sort of like weapon out of it at some point probably the chumash indians that lived in the area that our house is in i don't know but no i might have kissed that song because it's really smooth i do remember rubbing on my lips saying to my wife do you believe how smooth this is and she just looked at me like you're such an idiot she doesn't understand my relationship with rocks all right that's it you're out bria is out um any other questions because we are kind of close to the end of the show although I could go a little long because I started a little late. Um, uh, Dan Weber says, you guys in California have been through hell. Thank you guys for doing this show. I gotta tell you, um, going back to the fire for a minute, I was on the 101 about a half mile, mile from the office on Sunday, going somewhere. And there was still, even though the fires are essentially out anywhere near the office and near our home, the fires are definitely out. Malibu, there are probably still some hot spots. It literally burnt like over to the ocean. But um, 
I was driving on the 101 and sure enough, I drove by and saw this thing look like a little mini volcano. There was like a hole in the dirt about four feet off the freeway. And there was clearly a bunch of smoke coming out of this little hole. And I had on uh, a talk radio station and they said, yeah, we just had a report of a, a hotspot in Calabasas and they were dispatching a crew and when i finished running my errand was driving back the other way there was a fire truck sitting there squirting water down this hole so it could have been a buried cable that shorted out and was still smoldering i don't know but um we are out of danger thank god is all i got to say because this one was scary um I was in your, Paul House says he was in our office Tuesday before the fire. So by the time I landed in the UK, it was making the news. I couldn't believe it. So glad you're all safe. Thanks, Paul. It's great having you here at the office. Loved hanging out with you. Um, love the Create. I'm thinking uh, you're talking about Create Music Academy. I love those guys. Cannot say enough good stuff about them. They're smart. They're really good people and said something else about the ballroom event with Lauren showing the picking music for a show, very cool. I mean, seriously, being in the room watching Lauren, or Laurel, I mean, um, pick the music, it, it gave you a whole different perspective that it, it's not picking music for music's sake, it's picking the right tool. They literally look at it as kind of a tool. It's like picking the right color for a wall in the room. We all have our personal preference, whereas a professional designer would pick a color that worked in the space and worked with the furniture, worked with the draperies. That's what they're doing. Cass, you have goats. Um, I don't know. I think I've disclosed this on the show that that's what I want to do someday when I retire is raise goats. I love goats. Um, scanning to see if there's anything else all right well linda Colm says she saw laurel both times and it was invaluable yep cass you have three goats wow um i almost bought a goat uh i don't know sometime this summer we were at one of those little family farm places i, I literally am serious that someday i'm gonna own goats i love goats um and they had a white, black and white splotchy goat with these intense blue eyes. And it was just the most awesome looking goat ever. And it was for sale for a few hundred bucks. And, and we found out we can actually have a goat in our backyard where we live, but we were gonna be traveling a lot this summer. So we didn't wanna buy a goat and then leave it in the backyard for the coyotes to get while we were gone. Um, let's see official number you know honestly i didn't look at the absolute final final number but i will tell you that it was definitely up over last year i think at some point for 20 percent more than last year it was a lot um fadi eshmael hi from israel love the road rally as usual great advice all around stay safe back in california well i happen to be in israel this summer and i love your country too had a great time there um and boy is that a long flight oh <laughs> um Cass uses them for weed control <laughs> ever since they legalized marijuana in the state of california there's no such thing as weed control anymore did you guys smell that by the way 
we went back to the Westin, as I mentioned, when we had to evacuate our house. And the whole time I was there, first of all, it was really nice walking through the lobby and being completely anonymous. I was just like everybody else, kind of enjoyed that, I got to say. But everywhere I went in the hotel, I thought it was just you guys at the road route. I smelled weed several times walking through the lobby of this big hotel. Even after the road rally, people were gone and just regular people. It's people go outside to smoke weed like they go outside to smoke cigarettes and eventually it wafts into the lobby. Um, it's the strangest thing. Drew Richardson says, my dad has two baby goats at his place in France. Oh, that, see, now that would be my ideal retirement, would be living in the south of France with a bunch of goats and making goat cheese. That would be awesome. There's a, a book that Judy Stakey, who used to be the senior vice president of Warner Chapel Music, she told me to get the book called A Goat Song. And it's about a husband and wife that lived in New York City and he worked like on Wall Street and who knows what she did. And they cashed in everything and they moved to upstate New York and they raised goats and learned how to make goat cheese. And that book was my inspiration. Um, Hey, Michael, any idea when we will hear if our songs were forwarded to the panels? I really don't, other than I know that the, the screeners were getting near the end of it, I believe, this past Friday. I believe. Um, Peter Rahill says, the Weedston Hotel. Yes, it was. Um, oh, yes, and the cannabis billboard. Only in Los Angeles. Uh, I've got it on my phone somewhere. If there's a giant billboard, you look out of the hotel, and on Century Boulevard, there's one for a gentleman's club, which I don't think gentlemen actually go to those clubs, um, and then another one for weed. And I thought, boy, what a great way to welcome people to your city. But then I realized that the billboards are on the departure side of Century Boulevard as you're heading to the airport. So they're really telling you these are the things that you missed while you were in our city, the strip club and the weed. Yeah, the contracts are coming. Um, everybody who's a successful member will tell you it's all a matter of being patient. And I, you've got to think, gee, I've had 30 forwards over a period of a half a year. You would think that somebody would have offered me a deal. Somebody will. I was just looking at the forum today and saw that somebody said, yeah, you know, a year and a half after I got this thing forwarded, happens all the time. People ask for music for a particular project. They, the library has a brief. They're trying to submit music for it. And they find something right away. And then all the other music that comes from Taxi or anywhere else they get it goes into a folder. Let's say it's scary music, horrific music. They, the, the library owner, supervisors do this. Everybody in the industry does it. They will create a folder that says horrific music 2018 and everything that they hear they like, they shove in there, and here you go, two years later, they're looking to build another horrific, you know, a bin of horrific music, and that's the day they open that folder and go, oh, I remember this when I heard it a year and a half ago, and they reach out and you get a deal, and then they go, do you have anything else? Now you've got a relationship, and that relationship turns into 70 pieces of music in that library, and you go, wow, I was such a bonehead back when I was being so impatient. Just be patient, and don't forget, Repeat after me, everybody. Write, submit, forget, repeat. Write, submit, forget, repeat. Write, submit, forget, repeat. It'll sink in, and eventually you will become a successful taxi member because it does.
Um, I think that's it, guys. All right. So hopefully everything is fine. Um, and Henry will be back on the show. And next week, we you will get to see the first ever split-screen version of moi on one side of the screen and a member or guest on the other side of the screen doing a remote show. How cool is that? That opens us up for all kinds of other possibilities. So thank you, guys. Sorry that the show started out disastrously, disastrously but you know what they say, all's well that ends well. See you next week for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah. Bye.